UK's official number one. Highest glamour in the chart this week, up 20 spots in a row. Drake is back featuring Whiskit and Kyla. One Dance is your number one single this week on the UK Singles Chart. I need a one dance, got a Hennessy in my hand. One more time I go. For your chart action updates, tune in every Saturday afternoon at 5 o'clock with me, Alison Howe, on RTHK Radio 3. International hits on a global station. This is Radio 3. Hello, I'm Sue Mae Thompson, CEO of the Women's Foundation. As you may be aware, the 2016 LegCo elections are fast approaching. I'm here to remind you to update your contact details if you've changed residence in the last few months. Don't miss your chance to shape Hong Kong's future and vote this September. To check to see if your registration particulars are up to date, please look for the online voter information inquiry system at voterregistration.gov.hk. With music, news and information, this is Radio 3. Bonjour, ça va bien? Bienvenue au Shabby. Scene one, take two. Good morning and welcome to yet another Beers for Bacon show with me, Jason Black. Excuse me parlaying the old Francais there in the beginning. As a supporter of Brexit and all things roast beef, I thought it better that we switch back to English for the rest of our show. But joking aside, May is a big month for French cuisine in Hong Kong, so we are going to dedicate the show to all things French, with some cool things from Alsace, the region that's featured in this year's Le French Gourmet. JC Viennes, our globe-trotting wine expert, is back in the studio, and a little later on I'll be chatting cheese with a fanatic of all things fromage, Jean-Carlo Hmm. For a change, we've got a gadget test that isn't murd, with Chef Mutaro Balde of Bibo putting it through its paces. He'll also share a couple of great tips with us. I also popped over to the master of foie gras in Hong Kong, Chef Patrick Goubier, to see what sort of an Alsatian twist he's bringing to the duck liver delicacy. J is the letter in our alphabet soup du jour. Yes, even our alphabet soup is a French flavour. And in a bit... We'll be flipping through this week's book by Paul Bacuse. But before all of that, a big welcome back to JCVNs. Good morning, Jason. Oh, no, sorry. Good afternoon. I mean, I just landed this morning from uh, from my flight and I had a nap. Uh, so now I don't know what time of day it is, but it doesn't matter. As long as I'm with you here talking about wine, I'm happy. Good. It's been a it's been a big travel schedule for you. Six weeks, in fact, That's six weeks. So the wife time. is not so so happy. At this she didn't moment. go with you. No, no, not at all. No. Oh, the wine widow. <laughs> yeah, the wine widow. You know, I always say, "Happy wife, happy life." <laughs> <laughs> so now I have a lot to catch up with. <laughs> absolutely, and I hope that you'll be doing it with wine. Yes, absolutely. Especially that uh, the French May is dedicated to Alsace, so most likely with uh, some wines from. That beautiful region, actually. Do you know about the wines of Alsace, Jason? I, I, I know a little bit. I know Riesling's a very, uh, a very big part of it. But uh, you're, you're the expert. Well, I'm only the expert because I got lost once in Alsace, 
I mean, I, I rented a car to travel around and I was on the phone with uh, Maria, of course. So, but, you know, I, I was wearing the, 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 the earplugs, yeah. And uh, I was driving this car and talking to her. I decided to, to follow another person. And as I was following, following, this person turned left and I figured that he was doing the same thing as I was doing, watching the vineyards. So I drove and followed him and then I got lost, of course. Uh, I ended up on a peak of the mountains called the Vosges Mountains. And this is quite fitting that I ended up there because the Vosges Mountains are very, very important for Alsace. They create what is called, what we call in the wine world, the rain shadow. Uh, you know, the dominant winds come from Paris, come from the Atlantic Oceans, and that brings a lot of cool air and a lot of rain. But thanks to these mountains in that area, it keeps Alsace very dry, possibly the driest uh, area of France. So this is why the wines here are very um, ripe, first of all, and they can achieve, even though they are quite high in latitude, uh, in a very cool climate, they can achieve uh, a very, very high level of um, uh, ripeness uh, so that their quality is uh, really fantastic and especially the wines are dry. So you were mentioning about Riesling. Many people think Riesling should be sweet because they think of some Riesling from Germany. Mm. But in fact, that area being so dry, they are able to achieve 13, 14% alcohol. So therefore, the Rieslings here are very bone dry and very delicious um, and perfect for matching food, matching the food of uh, Hong Kong, especially, actually. But Riesling is, is um, only one grape that um, is being made in, uh, grown in that area. There's also Muscat, very aromatic, very fragrant wine. Pinot Gris, uh, which is the counterpart of Pinot Grigio. Pinot Grigio is very famous in Italy, but actually the home of the grape uh, uh, is Alsace, actually. Uh, these wines are full-bodied, very rich, lush, luscious wines, very nice. And uh, they also make uh, white wine from Pinot Noir. And these are very tender, delicate, fresh and crisp, beautiful wines in Alsace. Now, you, you mentioned before some wise words from Maria's mom, your mother-in-law, about appreciating food from the region and wine from the region. How do you feel um, the wines of Alsace pair with the, the cuisine? You know, it's known for choucroute. Munster cheese, a whole lot of different things. Do you think they pair as well? Yes, in fact. Uh, so being this kind of food is very rich and very fatty. So what you need here is a wine that is actually quite uh, high in acidity, quite fresh, and so that it will cut into that uh, fattiness and that richness to uh, elevate, to make everything more light and more um, vivacious in your mouth. And so... These wines are perfect because being so ripe, they are very aromatic. They are uh, at a high level of alcohol. Uh, but because Alsace is also quite cool, even though it's dry, uh, they can maintain a very good level of acidity. And so uh, Pinot Noir and uh, Riesling in particular are very naturally high in acidity. So the match of this wine with the food of choucroute, very rich, fatty food, works very well, very perfectly, actually. Another dish that they, they do very well is a foie gras dish. What would you pair, you know, traditionally it would be done with a sauterne or something like that if you were going to have a, a, a typical uh, foie gras prepared in the Alsatian style, what would you drink with it? 
That's a good point, actually. So Tern, it's quite popular. It's a classic match. Frankly, I don't understand why. I mean, for me, Sauterne is quite rich, uh, and uh, uh, to pair it with foie gras is also rich, so it makes for a very rich pairing. Uh, but uh, uh, it's delicious nonetheless, and uh, Sauterne is quite acidic, and therefore it would work to cut through that fattiness, as I was mentioning to you. In Alsace, they have two categories of wines that are quite uh, particular for this. One is called uh, Late Harvest, and one is uh, Selection de Grenoble. So this uh, category uh, is from is made from grapes picked uh, with a rot that we call Noble Rot. It's a good rot. And uh, this is very similar to what you find in Sauternes, actually. A lot of sweetness. So in Sauternes, the wines are sweet. They are also made from Noble Rot uh, grapes. Therefore, the characteristics are very similar. What's with all this rot, JC? Well, the, this rot is called botrytis, and because at the end of the season, when the grapes are ripe, uh, this fungus attacks the berry in a way that actually preserves the integrity of the berry. The berry has good quality, and it creates uh, more sugar and also more character, more complexity to the to the final wine. So it's a, this is why we call it noble, good rot. I think we should talk about that um, on another show. Last minute, what would you recommend somebody drinks to celebrate French gourmet? Actually, from Alsace, they also make sparkling wine that are very delicious. And they don't call it champagne in Alsace, they call it crément. And uh, someone should look for uh, crément because they are so refreshing and so lovely to drink. Well, I hope you're going to get a bottle to calm down Maria. Uh, for sure thing. <laughs> happy wife, happy life. Merci beaucoup to JCVN. He'll be back with us next week, same time. We'll chat to him then. Right, it's time to go, go, gadget. And for a change, I thought it best to test one that actually does tick all of the boxes. The history of today's beauty, according to someone called Chef Harvey on the internet, dates back to before the 1500s. There were images of this original version appearing in some culinary book published by a guy called Bartholomew Scappi, who is apparently the cook of Pope Pius VI. Now, it took a few hundred more years for the device to evolve into the metal and plastic version that we know today. As was the custom, people used musical instruments to call their kitchen gadgets, and so the mandolin was named. We have to give the French their due, of course. They did perfect it. Let's go over to Bebo and chat to Chef Mutaru Balde while he puts his mandolin through its paces. Mandolin, I think, is one of the best things that chef can have in his kitchen. I don't know any chef who, don't, uh, who do not have mandolin. Myself, I'm not sure if I can work without mandolin because you can do so much with the mandolin. Cutting some vegetables, doing like brioche, julienne, a uh, thin line of concombre, carrot, uh, and then you can cut them as a julienne. So, to be honest, fantastic uh, tool to use in the kitchen. Uh, since I start to cook, I, I'm using mandolin. You have a different kind of mandolin, uh, but it's a very, very good machine to, to have in the kitchen. This one we call it the Japanese mandolin. And uh, to be honest, the one thing is very important that I recommend. Anybody who uses the mandolin to be very careful 
because it's very uh, sensitive too and very fragile but also you know your finger you can for example when you cut any vegetable on the mandolin we have this tendency to go like uh, very fast so the best thing to do is to put your hand very flat on the mandolin like this way do not use your finger like this way because there's the best chance you cut yourself so put your hand very flat on the top of the mandolin on the top of anything you have to cut carrot, concombre, uh, avocado, potato put on the top of that and then go up and down up and down like uh, I would anything out of my chef whatever you have to do when you do when you use the mandolin stop everything focus on the what you are cutting because if I cut some vegetable and then I'm, I'm talking to my friend or anyone else it's the best chance as well to, to cut uh, himself so please to everybody just make sure that you put your hand very flat and then take your time when you use the, the mandolin very important and what's the difference between a, a Japanese mandolin and a French mandolin? Well, I like the Japanese one uh, because they're very, first of all, they're very light you know, to use. And uh, I always find them, the knife is very well shaped. So anything you have to cut uh, can be very quick. And then you have different size. Uh, basically, I use, to be honest, I use the small size, the small one. Because, of course, after, after, after using, you can put it anywhere in your thing. Don't take any space. And uh, in terms of, um, of uh, how to call it, necessity for me, it's the best thing to use. I prefer this one. I use the, the French one. Uh, for example, if I want to do like some uh, vegetable spaghetti, like carrot, concombre, potato, so you can use the French one because the, the, the knife have different uh, teeth, so that can give like a, a pasta spaghetti shape. So for, the, for that one, the French one is, is really good as well. But the, and then you can put it, um, they, the French one have like a feet, so you can put it up and then leave it there, so you just have to hold it. Which uh, you cannot find on the Japanese, uh, the Japanese one. The Japanese one just have to hold on the top of it, put it uh, this way on the chipping board, and then up and down, put your hand very flat on it. And what would you give the, the mandolin out of 10? To be honest, 10. You know, the reason is because you cannot walk without it. That was Chef Mutaro Balde. Chefs love reading the tomes of others who've carved a valley-sized niche in their field of expertise. And for sure, you don't just wake up one morning to find you have a legion of honor on your mantelpiece. Added to that, to be named the chef of the century and to be regarded as the father of modern French cookery, you've earned some serious serious chops. For sure you'll have a repertoire of recipes that will still be cooked in a hundred years. The chef I'm talking about is none other than Paul Bucuse, a chef from a different era who still continues to remain as iconic now as he was a few decades ago. The Complete Bucuse by Paul Bucuse is a collection of nearly five hundred recipes that are supposedly aimed at the home cook. But to be honest, to approach the majority of the recipes, you do need some proficiency in the kitchen. I'm guessing Bukuj wrote it thinking that cooking comes to everyone naturally, and unlike a lot of more modern cookbooks, it doesn't go into the details that can often assist those new to cooking. But, to be honest, the internet is a wonderful thing, so if you are unsure, you know where to research. I do prefer it Bukuj style, because the recipes are from a man that did do it. 
a man that will always be remembered for it and not just for TV. 500 recipes is a lot. The book is big and it isn't one that you're going to pull off the shelf with the hope of whipping up a good housekeeping style marvelous meal under five minutes, especially after a day at the grindstone. But then not all cookbooks should be those. And this one, whilst it's difficult to use without the usual quirky chef's tips, is definitely worth having, even if it is just to glimpse inside the mind of a man who has shaped modern French food the way that you and I enjoy it today. The way that you and I enjoy it today. French gastronomy without foie gras would be like Hong Kong without the rugby sevens. We'd get used to it, but life would never ever be the same. Chef Patrick Goubier, who last month celebrated 10 years in Hong Kong with his restaurants, is a master of liver, in particular that of duck and goose. Alsace, also known for its quality of foie gras, is the theme of this year's French maize, we've said, so I met up with Chef Patrick to see how he's bringing the essence of the region to his signature ingredient. Alsace is very famous for his smoked product. Is also, um, uh, I come from Lyon. Lyon is very much pork things, but Alsace also is very famous for charcuterie, pork product, yeah. So, um, what I do, I use the uh, blood pudding or the black pudding. The idea is to make something very typical from Alsace, but in a spirit. So, what I will, I will, first I will remove the skin of the black pudding make a, a nice flavor with some uh, citrus zest, yeah? Wrapped in a pastry, baked in oven. This one is to, is to keep the, the texture to something very moist, yeah? And the smoked flavor will be bring my, with my own smoked foie gras. So uh, I won't smoke it. Um, little bit flavored with uh, an alcohol, you know, um, to very much make the pronunciation of the, of the, of the smoking a bit more obvious, yeah? And everything is finished with sauerkraut espuma, or a form of sauerkraut. So the idea is to make the sauerkraut, the traditional one, but afterwards I'm going to, to blend it and to enter the maximum oxygen inside to make something very foamy. So the whole dish uh, will, have the, will have the smoky flavor, very much uh, represent um, Alsace region. The uh, blood pudding, because this is also uh, very typical, and everything is surrounded with something very smooth who tastes the sauerkraut. Thanks, Chef Patrick. It sounds delicious. J is the letter for our alphabet soup today, so let's start it off with a little ham. J is for jambon, a typical French air-dried ham, Bayonne, an ancient port city in the southwest of France, is particularly famous for the smoked hog cold cut. J is also for jardinier, as in a la jardinier, the term that's used to describe a garnish of vegetables, typically carrots, onions, green beans and turnips. Julienne is another famous J, and a fitting one given that our gadget today was a mandolin. The term julienne refers to batons of vegetables, usually cut into thin matchstick size strips about two inches long and an eighth of an inch wide. Lastly, J is for jus de viande. 
those delicious natural meat juices that are normally spooned onto a dish rather than a typical English gloopy gravy. Now, on French menus, cheese is usually enjoyed before the dessert. So before chatting about a typical kugelhop from Alsace, I thought it would be great to chat to a cheese expert, Jean-Carlo Ng, about all things fromage. Thanks very much for joining us today. What is it about cheese that drives you so much? Well, I started having French cheese when I was working in the Four Seasons as a, as a server in there. And uh, I started to enjoy it bit by bit. So initially, of course, uh, I was apprehensive trying this, but eventually uh, it grew on me. And from there, uh, my passion started with cheese and so on. And how did you develop it? I developed it um, through tasting the cheese itself. I think knowing the product itself gives you the ability to talk about it even more. As a cheese lover, what are your favorite cheeses to enjoy? I, I love creamy cheeses, something similar to a Bria Savahan. This is a kind of cheese where it's a double cream cheese and they add extra cream to it. I, I know it's a, it sounds quite heavy, but um, it's it's great. It's just a, it's just a great cheese to have. It's light uh, and it's something great to start with when you're going through a cheese platter. So if somebody um, was relatively new to cheese and they wanted to start on it, obviously you would avoid the, the hardcore ones like yes. the, the Rockfoot and uh, the, po- was it the Pope's nose or the Bishop's nose. or this, uh, <laughs> the, the stinking bishop, that's yes. the one. Uh, um, the more versions of the ab- cheeses. Absolutely. Yes. So for, a, for a, a newbie, if you want to use yes. the word to cheese, you start off with the lighter, creamier, approachable ones, and that's yes. how you did it? Yes, uh, that's um, uh, that's how I started uh, with the Bria Savahan. Initially, even the goat milk cheeses, I was apprehensive about it. But what people always think is uh, goat milk cheeses are something which is uh, uh, quite strong. But generally, it's more lighter uh, for the goat milk cheeses. And when you're preparing a cheese platter, you put it on the front because uh, the flavors are more subtle for the goat milk cheese. I think what people don't appreciate is how much effort it takes to maintain a proper cheese board and how expensive cheese really, really is. You will see really good cheese boards like they had at Caprice and and other venues around town where they have a fantastic selection of cheese. But you can't just put out a small little wedge because it looks like you you being a a tight, Uh I can't say the word, but you know what I mean. So to maintain something like that, it's really expensive. When when you have cheese boards, how do you make sure that there's enough uh, selection Mm -hmm. uh, so that people can have a variety of things, but at the same time make it valuable? Or make make it of value. Um, uh, it really depends on which time of year as well, because uh, cheese is a seasonal thing. Um, during the springtime, this is when goat milk cheese is at, is at its best, because uh, what happens is uh, the, uh, the the new grass comes out and uh, the goats absorb this, and it translates to the cheese itself. So uh, it's more vibrant. Um, the taste is much more better. So. It really depends on what year, and that's when you order what kind of cheeses that you want for the for the uh, guests to have. Now, you say it's seasonal, and I'm sure it's also very regional. You know, you have fantastic Italian cheeses, fantastic mm-hmm. uh, French cheeses. And because it's May, and it's Le French Gourmet, and Alsace is the region for this year, uh, Munster is a very famous uh, cheese from Alsace. Tell, me, tell us a little bit about, about that cheese in particular. The first thing that comes into mind is pungent, uh, for sure. Uh, this is uh, our more stronger cheeses. 
in the spectrum of things. Uh, uh, monster is brined on the outside with salted water. So uh, what happens is it becomes more meatier. Now, this kind of cheese-making process has been around for quite a, quite a long time. And it became popular because uh, a long time ago, when, um, when monks couldn't consume any meat, they, they found that when they brine a cheese in salted water, it becomes much more meatier. And so that's why they preferred this one. Part of the show that we have, we always cover wine. And uh, when we have JC on, we chat about the tasting of wine and the pairing of wine and, uh, wine and food in particular. So tell me, how do you do a cheese tasting? Now, the thing about cheese itself is it's alive. Uh, you can have it a week before and it can taste completely different from uh, now. So uh, it truly depends on how the cheese is at that time. When, when you have, uh, a, uh, I would say, an epos, uh, a more pungent type of cheese, sometimes it comes in rock solid and sometimes it's oozing off the board. Uh, this is because of the maturation of the cheese itself. Let's talk about the giant mouse in the room, smelly cheese. Now, uh, smelly cheeses, it speaks about the pungency of the cheese. And let me tell you this, try your hardest to get over it and you might discover something truly wonderful. That was cheese expert Jean-Carlo Ng. Now, in my book, Good Cheese Needs Good Bread. So who better to ask what bread goes best than the BS for Bacon master baker, Gregoire Michaud? It's a matter of your own personal taste uh, and the way you enjoy cheese. Uh, maybe uh, the, the English people like it more with crackers and the French people like it more with bread. But um, I also enjoy it with crackers. Uh, but crackers doesn't have to be just water crackers. You know, you can make some lavosh with special uh, seeds and so on. And then some people like to eat bread with the cheese, and then they like to have the queen space, the nuts, the things, the jam. I think this is depending on the experience you want to have. But if you're a cheese extremist, like a pure cheese lover, you don't really want to dissolve your cheese experience with many, many different flavors. I think when it comes to bread uh, or, or crackers, uh, personally I like to have a rather plain base uh, where the typicity of the bread will be more on the, uh, for example, fermented on sourdough, uh, have a, a nice crunchy crust and a nice crumb and a nice, if you say it's rye bread, then it's, it's a nice rye flavor, uh, but it's settled. Inside there is no, no things uh, disturbing the, the, the cheese. Um, I would say after yes, you can say oh, with Comté you want you want to have a, a, a brioche or with a, a mimolette you want to have a, a rye bread and, and so on. You can pair cheese and bread like the way you can pair cheese and wine or beer. But I would rather stay on simple bread. You know, as long as it's well executed, like a, a, a baguette or a, a rye, rather than having a bread with walnuts, figs, uh, apricots, almonds. Yes, it's, it's nice for an experience, but maybe more in, into a dish that is prepared. So you're going to toast it or make it French toast and have the melted cheese with apple. You, you know, a preparation around cheese rather than pure cheese and bread. So that's a little bit what I think. As always, Gregoire Show. Let's end today's show with a delicious dessert from Alsace, the Kugelhopf. 
Very similar to brioche, this baked sweetbread is usually packed with almonds and dried fruit and starts off with a sponge made with milk, yeast and a little bit of strong flour. You make a dough using this starter sponge along with eggs, butter, flour, vanilla, sugar, lemon zest and a handful of alcohol-laced fruit. This mixture is put into a fluted Kugelhopf pan, which has been lined with sliced almonds. After being allowed to double in size during proving, it's baked for about 40 minutes, then allowed to cool, before being brushed with a syrup made with sugar and orange flour water. So check out the Beers for Bacon Facebook page for a great recipe. I'll be back next weekend with some more Beers for Bacon fun. Until then, au revoir. And of course, join Chef Jason Black next week at the same time for another Bees for Bacon show. You can find all of today's recipes on his Facebook page, as you heard earlier. So I'll repeat it. Bees for Bacon on RTHK3. The program was produced by Phil Whelan. What is the meaning of respect? Some people say it means accepting each other's differences with no conditions. Some think it means not criticizing others for following their own style, making their own choices, or expressing their views. So what do you think? One thing is certain. If you want to be respected, you must respect others first. Respect different values. Embrace different views. Weather prior to the news, uh, mainly cloudy, a few showers, moderate easterly winds, fresher times. Uh, the maximum this afternoon up to around 25 degrees. More showers tomorrow, but sunshine, or at least more sunshine, possibly on Monday. Currently 23, humidity 77%.